Welcome back to Volsteadland. I'm Heather, and this is Amy. Hi! This is episode 7, The Bumbling Crew, part 2, and I really want to say Electric Boogaloo. We're so glad you're here. Join us as we take a trip back in time to the 1920s and 30s in Minneapolis and discover the city's seedy underworld. If you have not yet listened to the previous episodes, especially part 1 of The Bumbling Crew... You'll want to go back and listen to at least that one, as there is some stuff there that you'll need to know to get the most out of this one. The only update I have since last time is that I looked up Marta Liggett Woodbury and discovered that sadly she passed away July 8th, 2008. However, I realized that her daughter, Heather Woodbury, is a performer. She's a writer who performs her works on stage like a one-woman show. She also has a podcast that I just started listening to. It's called Heather Woodbury's As the Globe Warms. I'll link it in the show notes. Since we recorded this episode the same night we recorded episode six, we had the same cocktail, which was the Scofflaw. Though I believe after the recording, we switched to whiskey diets. So sit back, grab your drink of choice, and join us in 1936 for the continuation of the trial of Kid Can for the murder of Walter Liggett. In the last episode, we covered the details of the night of the murder, various police statements of witnesses, and then just touched on some of the shenanigans that went on at the trial. In this episode, we talk about dismissed witnesses, alibis, the results and aftermath of the trial, and as always, corruption. Hi, friends. Welcome to Season 5 of The Activity Continues, a paranormal podcast. I'm Amy, the producer and host of the show, along with Megan and the other Amy. We are three soul friends who love to talk about the Dead Files TV show, along with other spooky and spooky adjacent things. We are just starting our third year, and it's going to be the best one yet. Hi, everyone. I'm Megan, our resident scaredy cat. <laughs> I love this stuff, but it absolutely terrifies me. <laughs> I, I, it doesn't terrify me. Me neither. Most of the time. Hey everyone, I'm the other Amy, sometimes referred to as Amy, ABP, or AP, and I'm the voice of reason in the chaos, trying to keep these two spooky, goofy, lovely ladies in line. <laughs> We're creating a community of like-minded friends who love to discuss all things paranormal. Along with our thoughts and tangents, you will also hear listener stories and interviews with paranormal professionals, Dead Files clients, and people with personal paranormal experiences. So far, we've spoken to a witch, an intuitive, a shaman, a UFO abductee, and a handful of Dead Files clients. We're always looking for more cool and interesting people to talk to. So if you're interested, please reach out to theactivitycontinues at gmail.com or fill out the guest intake form on our website, theactivitycontinues.com. We'd love to hear from you. Come join us where the, the activity, activity continues. continues. 
Thanks for joining us. So the first real good witness is at first he was a mystery man and he was in hiding since the murder. He had spent eight days in the workhouse with Kid Can and he saw him every day, three times a day. His name is Wesley Andersh. His identity was uncovered by a Minneapolis Tribune reporter because remember the police ain't looking for anybody. Right. Um, he was found hiding at his father's farm near Kimball with his fiance, Dora Isaacson. He was brought back to the city on December 17th and fearing for his life, he and Dora stayed in the jail for protection. Wesley Andrish testified on January 30th. So this was early, early on. Uh, he said it was Kid Can who was the machine gun killer. He said that on the day of the shooting, he was leaving his fiance's building, which shares an alley with Walter's building. A car came down the alley and brushed the open door that he had just opened to get into the alley. It's really tight back there. Um, it, it touched the door, scratched the door a little. He turned to shout or swear at the driver when he saw someone leaning out of the car and shooting. And he recognized him as Kid Can. He alerted the apartment caretaker and then fled and went to hiding at his father's farm. The lawyer said, you mean the defendant, Isadora Blumenfeld? And he said, I don't know any Isadora Blumenfeld. I know Kid Can. And then he pointed to him. Can's lawyer, Thomas McMeekin, went into the details of Wesley's life way back more than 20 years with, quote, the intention of laying the foundation for an attempt to impeach. So basically, right. they're trying to discredit him. Um, after intense grilling, he became, quote, highly flustered and inconsistent. Oh, Apparently, lawyers. he changed his story a few times. That's what they do. I know. <laughs> I know. They're good at it. And these guys are good. Um, first, he said that the car that came through was going 15 to 20 miles an hour, and it was a Studebaker or a sedan. Then later, he said it went 30 to 40 miles an hour and was a short, uh, Ford or a Chevy. I can't imagine 30 narrow, to 40 miles an hour down a narrow alley, alley a real sense. tight alley. That doesn't make any sense. Um, he also said that he was the only one on the scene when Walter died, that Edith wasn't even there. When she was asked about this later, she responded with, quote, Mr. Anders must have run up to the body and then run right back again. Coming from that direction, he would have been running right into the glare of our headlights and would not have seen me. Mm hmm. She's smart. His testimony is pretty damning. So, of course, they tried to discredit him. They round up a bunch of folks who knew him years ago and all said that he was either lying or untrustworthy. The caretaker of Dora's building where he was visiting said that she, the caretaker, is the one who heard Edith say it was Kid Can, and she told Wesley that. So she thinks that's where he got it, not that he saw him himself, and she doesn't remember if the lights in the car were on or off. They spoke to a few others, and when asked how they considered his reputation for truth and veracity, all of them replied it was either bad or very bad. 
So while Wesley was being questioned, the the judge kept admonishing the defense team from trying to, quote, impeach the witness on insignificant matters. And ultimately, most of the testimony saying that Anders was untrustworthy didn't make it in. The judge denied it, made him cross it off. Edith took the stand on January 31st. She was not present for the rest of the trial. Uh, She just wanted to. She didn't want to be around for it, and I don't blame her. She fought back tears as she told the story of the murder, and the judge, seeing her discomfort, ordered the court corridors cleared. Edith said at the trial, uh, she denies she said anything the night of the murder about linking Olson and his mob or Schulberg, just Kid Can. She explains that when she phoned her mother, she said, Governor Olson's gang got Walter mother. Mother asked, do you know who did it? And she said, yes, kid can. But she never said anything to the police. We'll find out that the police overheard her talking to her mom and said that they, that she said it in her statement. She then puts a real cherry on the top of her testimony by saying, my claim, this is a quote, my claim is that the murder would not have been committed without Governor Olson's permission, meaning either they ordered it or permitted it. Wow. And then later she wrote a letter to a friend. I did a fool thing on the trial when I let Can's lawyer McMeekin egg me into saying that Olson either permitted or ordered the murder. Of course it's true, but I believe that there are at least two, maybe three farmer laborites on the jury. I was the most surprised person in the courtroom when I heard myself making that statement. Uh, <laughs> uh, I've been there. God say not in trial, but you find yourself just spitting shit out and you're like, stop, stop. Why are you saying that? Why are you saying that? Stop. And you can't, it's just barfing out. <laughs> Ugh, I do it a lot. Anyway, Marta was one of the last witnesses. They didn't keep her on for very long, but they, she did say that there were two men in the murder car. She said this time they were both in the front seat. Uh, she was upset that they didn't let her stay on longer. She really wanted to tell them everything she knew, but they didn't want to keep her on. They didn't cross examine her. Um, and her brother Wally didn't have to testify at all. And he was super relieved because he didn't want to anyway. But he wasn't in the car when it happened. Mm-mm. He was not in the car. He was in the apartment. Um, who knows if he was in the room, you know, that had the window looking down. Right, right. It seems that he did not know that his father was dead until his sister ran up into the apartment and told him. So I don't think he saw anything. Right. And that's probably why he didn't have to testify, but I think they told him he might have to. But he didn't. Okay. So the cop's testimony. I I have cut this down. It was like 18 pages. I boiled it down because it's pretty boring and pretty annoying. But um, so if you have any questions while I'm saying, I might have left something in that's referring to something I cut out. (laughs) So if you, if you have questions, let me know. I can probably remember what the answers are. So they called four policemen, two patrolmen, Miller and Jacobson, and two detectives, Olson and Wetheril. They tried to discredit Edith by saying that she was hysterical and that she had blamed Olson's gang. They also said that she said, Walter, who shot you? 
when she didn't, they were trying to prove that she didn't immediately know it was Kit Can. No. So they contradicted Edith on three major points. The type of murder car. The cops said that Edith originally said in her statement that it was a light coupe, but on the stand said it was a coach or a sedan. Now, according to her statement that made it to the paper, she said it was a dark car, but never was asked what type of car. So she did not say it was a light coupe. When they asked the cops if Edith gave him a description of the car, he said no. But that later in the apartment, he heard her mention coupe to somebody else. They also contradict on whether the alley was dark or well lit. Edith and a ton of other witnesses claim that the alley was very well lit. The cops say it was very dark and that no one could have seen what they claim they saw. They all say that the apartment lights were either off or shades were down. Everyone else claims that the lights were on and the shades were up. Wally and Amanda were in the apartment. I don't think they were sitting there in the dark. And what time was this? This was at 540, 540. So people would have their lights on and wouldn't be in bed. It would have been dark. I mean, if people did not have lights on uh, because the sun went down an hour before, but um, everybody had lights on and the cars had their headlights on. And one car, the cars were, the cars were coming at each other because Walter, when they came down the alley, he pulled in on the left side of the alley and the car. So he was facing this way and then the car came this way. And when it came level, that's when they shot him. So the headlights would have been on his headlights would have been shining this way. Their headlights would have been shining this way. So pretty much the whole alley would have been lit Lit up. up. The identity of the other occupant in the car, police say that Edith says it was Meyer Schulberg. She denies ever saying that. In, in her statement, she did not say that. She stated that she didn't and couldn't have ID'd Schulberg because she has no idea what he looks like. Not only did they contradict her, the Associated Press pointed out that these cops contradicted their own official police reports. So the patrolman, this is something I found odd. The two cops who arrived on the scene first, um, they were both asked what the weather was like that night. One of them said, quote, pretty snappy, and there was a very fine snow. The other patrolman, when asked, said, it was snappy, and there was a flimsy fall of snow. What is snappy? (laughs) Like crisp, cold? Yeah, yeah. I've used that to mean like, oh, it's cold. I probably got it from my dad, you know, his 20s slang. But, um, but I think that means cold, but I don't, I don't know that that's a term that was used super frequently. And the fact that those two statements are almost identical is yeah. suspect to me. I feel like that's what they were told to say. Yeah. And if they were told to say that, which doesn't mean shit, who cares? Think of all the other things they were told to say. Exactly. Uh, One of the cops said he heard Edith say to her mother on the phone, quote, it was either Kit Can or Governor Olson's mob. But he says there was no one else in the apartment at the time except for the son and the detectives. So no civilians heard it. So 
that's convenient. Um, this detective, not detective, patrolman Miller confirms that the lights were on in the Liggett apartment as well as the one across the alley. Um, the attorney asked for Miller's original signed statement, but the state refused to turn it over. So I think they were already going, this isn't what you said before. Right. Now we want to read your statement and show you that you're contradicting your own damn self. Most of the witnesses, even Edith, say they heard three shots, but there were five bullets in Walter. And nobody else has made a big deal out of this, but I just think it's odd that everybody says three shots, but there were five bullets. And then there's also this, maybe there were more than one car because one car was parked there and another one came careening around the corner. So I'm wondering if there wasn't more than one shooter. Oh, the second shooter. Know. Yeah, that just, I, it just kind of came to me as I was looking maybe at Maybe there this. was a grassy knoll. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Where was Gruber? Gruber, whatever his name was. <laughs> what is his name? The guy that took the film? Oh, I saw a great movie with him about him. Um, yeah. starring um, Paul Giamatti, but no, I don't remember mm. his name. It's like Bruder, Jabruder, Jabruder, Jabruder. Ah, fuck, you know, people are listening and <laughs> right. going, I know what it is. They're screaming right now. Um, I'll know it in a minute, probably. Mm. It'll be in the addendum. Something like Jabruder or Gabruder. I don't know. Not MacGruber. That's <laughs> <laughs> somebody else. MacGruber. Okay. They all say that Edith was hysterical and said things like they couldn't get anything out of her. She was quite disturbed. So therefore they think they can just say whatever they want about what she said, because of course she was out of her gourd, right? Um, they all say they heard Edith say that Schulberg was in the car with Can, but no one who's not a cop heard this. Um, I can't figure out why all the cops were asked about Mrs. Delaney, the caretaker. She doesn't seem to appear to testify. And the lawyers, they all want to know where she was, who was in the room with her, who saw her. This part is a mystery to me. I, I don't know, but it caught my attention. And it just seemed weird that they seemed really to kind of perseverate on her. And they all were like, I don't know who she is. There was a lady there. I don't know. Could have been her. Who knows? You know, they, but the lawyers seem to drill them, and I don't know why. Neither of these patrolmen made their statements available to the defendant or his representatives. One of the officers said when his statement was made that four copies of it were made. He asked if he and his partner would each get one, and they were told no. Uh, the detective, McCloskey, who was the guy in charge, said they didn't need them. So they don't have them state won't provide them. Uh, state attorney Pike, this is the old 71 year old who has no experience in yeah. <laughs> criminal law. <laughs> he read a police statement to the jury and it tracked with what the officers said. And the cops confirmed that it was correct. The cop Jacobson and Miller both said that they did not sign the original documents. Okay, so then there's detectives. The two detectives are Olson and Wetherill. Uh, after they got to the apartment, Edith became hysterical again and said she couldn't find Marta and said, oh, my God, they've taken her. And Mrs. Delaney assured her that Marta was in the apartment. Uh, 
when Olson asked Edith who did it, she said, quote, it would do no good to tell the police or the county attorney's office as they wouldn't do anything about it. And then he told her, just tell us and we'll get him. And she said, it was Kid Can. I'll never forget that sneering face. Then a few seconds later said it was either Kid Can or Governor Olson's mob. But then she became disturbed and began running her hair through over her face and through her hair and saying, I knew they would get him. <laughs> so they try to paint her like she's off a rocker. Yeah. <laughs> uh, then it was pointed out that what is in the police report is not what the officers are testifying. Basically, alleging that the reports added things that the cops did not say and left things out that they did say. And I have a little clip here from the newspaper. Um, this is a question answer from uh, Thomas, or, yeah, Thomas Meekin, who is Kid Can's attorney, to one of the police officers. And I believe it is, I th- believe it's one of the patrolmen. And he says, did you report Mrs. Liggett's telephone conversation with her mother to Captain Markson? Answer, no, I don't think we did. Question, did you report her saying it was Kid Can or Governor Olson's mob who did it? No. Question, so that there are statements you made to Captain Markson that are not contained in the report and others in it that you did not make? Yes. And then in that same article, It says, at this point, a copy of the report made by the two detectives was introduced by Pike and read to the jury. Question by McMeekin. Did you, in your report to Captain Markson, state that you had received information that Mr. Liggett, when he was shot, slumped into his own car, head down, and his hat fell off? And he answered, Liggett did? I don't recall saying that. McMeekin showed him the report. He answered again, I think that's supposed to refer to the man who fired the gun. Oh, then he questions again. uh, You don't know from what source Captain Markson obtained that information? And he says, no, I don't. Question. As a matter of fact, this is Captain Markson's summary of information he received from you and other officers. And he answers, yes, it is. McMeekin then objected to the report as hearsay and not the report of the detectives themselves. Further, he said, the report contains statements not made by the detective and omits other statements that they made to Markson. So uh, the slumped down thing, that came up in in another, somebody else's testimony. And it was when they asked one of the witnesses and they said that they didn't see the driver of the car because he was slouched down, like hiding when they drove by. Yep. So I think they kind of conflated that into being that. Yeah. So I think we have some, we have proof that someone tampered with the police reports and added and removed shit from them. So Kid Can had these alibi witnesses. Uh, The defense laid out Can's day leading up to the murder. He flitted about the whole city, running errands, dropping off things, picking up things, seeing people saying hi, flirting with all the ladies and all the offices. Um, I believe it was the judge that pointed out that after all these testimonies that kid can was in three different places at noon and at two different ones at three (laughs) o'clock his lawyer responded that he wasn't worried about the time discrepancies saying quote the point is that he was at certain places within certain hours and was going about his business in his usual normal way 
I get around. Yeah, so who cares if it doesn't match? <laughs> so now this is Meyer Schulberg's testimony. Um, not reading the whole thing, but um, he basically was asked to account for his own movements throughout the day. And he could account for himself up to 5.50 p.m. when he came home. And for Kid Can, up to 5.06 p.m. Um, <laughs> I noted that one of the jurors held up the trial for 20 minutes, suffering from a cold. In the middle of Schulberg's testimony, they had to stop because she had a cold. <laughs> she must have had a sneezing. Or coughing or, or she, yeah, yeah, I don't know who knows, but I thought that was a weird thing to note, but maybe it was a diversion. Maybe something happened. I don't know. Someone stole the police records and burned them. I don't know. Anyway, um, Schulberg says he gave his nephew the keys to the car for the day. And it was returned to him at about 5.30 when Schulberg took it home and it remained in the garage until 9.30 the following morning. But they never asked him why it smelled of gunpowder. I mean, maybe you didn't shoot Leggett, but... If you note that it smells of gunpowder, find out why. Exactly. <laughs> Unless someone tells you not to. Right. He claims he didn't dive near the alley. He doesn't even know where it is. Uh, he had known Kit Can for two years and referred to him as Harry. Uh, he was asked, Harry Bloom? And he said, no, just Harry. <laughs> like Cher? <laughs> he doesn't need a last name. Um, Schulberg says he never discussed business affairs with him, except for those pertaining to Harry's accounts. Another guy they brought in was um, a government agent. His name is C.H. Carhart. He's an investigator for the Federal Alcohol Tax Unit. He testified that no threat against Liggett had been made by Meyer Schulberg in the telephone conversation that happened that afternoon. He claims he was in the office with Schulberg when Liggett called. He answered, hello, Liggett, and then put his hand over the mouthpiece and whispered to CH, this is Walter Liggett. <sighs> it seems like we're acting out something like you wouldn't do that in normal conversation. Anyway, uh, and this guy confirms that Liggett called him, not the other way around. He agrees that um, that Schulberg said he's just a salesman, but he also heard him say, I wish I had a dozen like him, then I could be a millionaire. Side note, uh, Can was making $75 a week, which is about $1,500 now. That's a lot. That is a lot. A week. Yeah. Um, plus 10 cents, which is now $2 per case. He was apparently selling cases of liquor to retail stores, liquor stores. So if he's making that much, imagine what his boss is making. Unleash the power of stories anywhere, anytime with Audible. Immerse yourself in gripping stories, insightful knowledge, and captivating characters anytime, anywhere. Audible is your library on the go. With hundreds of thousands of titles across every genre, there's a world of reading waiting for your ears. Listen while you cook, clean, or commute. Free your eyes to conquer your day, all while feeding your mind. Start your 30-day free trial today and discover the joy of listening. Go to audibletrial.com slash TAC. That stands for The Activity Continues. With your free 30-day trial, you get one credit, two credits if you're a Prime member, good for any premium selection titles you like, yours to keep. 
you get the Audible Plus catalog of podcasts, audiobooks, guided wellness, and Audible originals. Listen all you want. No credits needed. Again, that is audibletrial.com slash TAC. If you're a regular listener, you know we love our three spirit drinks. They are the non-alcoholic spirit drinks that are taking the world by storm. Three Spirit is a range of three distinct drinks, each with its own unique flavor and effect. The Livener is a refreshing and invigorating drink that is perfect for starting your day or night. The Social Elixir is a smooth and sophisticated drink that's perfect for sharing with friends. And the Nightcap is a calming and relaxing drink that's perfect for winding down before bed. All three drinks are made with plant-based ingredients and are free from alcohol, gluten, and sugar. They're also vegan and ethically sourced. So whether you're looking for a delicious and refreshing drink to enjoy on its own or a sophisticated non-alcoholic alternative to cocktails, Three Spirit is the perfect choice for you. Try Three Spirit today and discover the difference. Visit us.3spiritdrinks.com and use the promo code The Activity Continues for 15% off your entire order. Cheers! That was the best one yet. Carhartt doesn't remember or won't confirm any other part of the phone call that Liggett says happened. Um, He said he spoke in a conversational tone, and when asked if Schulberg seemed angry, he said not particularly. There was no cross-examination. They brought in other people who claimed to have seen Can earlier in the day, at some of the places that he said he went. Most of these people knew him as Harry Bloom still. I honestly don't know how they were able to tell him from the real Harry Bloom, because the real Harry Blooms, he's running around. He works at the guest, one of the uh, liquor stores that they supply. So I don't know how they keep track of who's who, but I guess they just call him Kid Can maybe. Or maybe that was just part of the game. You know, maybe. Yeah, a lot of games. That was the whole point. Yeah. One of the men they interviewed was Sam Schink, bartender of the Keystone Bar. Can stopped by that bar earlier in the day to pick up a heater for Lillian's car. Sam wasn't there when Kid Can came in, but um, other people said he was there and supplied an alibi for him. He's actually Kid Can's brother-in-law. His sister, Kid Can's sister, Anne, is married to Sam. There was some disturbance at the Keystone and an officer was there around, this was around 2.15 to 2.45. So way early, it doesn't really have any bearing on the murder. Um, But this officer says, a man made an insulting remark to the defendant and I made the party move on. (laughs) Can's next stop was to uh, a fruit merchant named Max, Max Levine. And I just only put this in because I, it made me laugh because Max's testimony uh, is like talking to a brick wall. Question, when you talked to the detectives, didn't you tell them the defendant came in at one o'clock? Answer, I wouldn't say that. (laughs) Question, and didn't you tell them he was there until 3.30? Answer, I wouldn't say so. Question, would you say that you didn't tell them that? Answer, no, I wouldn't say that either. Oh, gosh. 
That's not the uh, that's not the witness you want. <laughs> Uh, so the next one was um, Beetleman or Beidelman, not sure how you pronounce that. Um, he is the partner of Meyer Schulberg. He owns the Chesapeake brand uh, company, or he doesn't own it. He's the secretary and he's a sales manager. He said he saw Can throughout the day in and out. He left, he left with Malkin, the, the like shipping errand boy. Um, and his car around 5 p.m. and then didn't see him again after that. Malkin returned the car at 5:30 after having dropped off Kid Can at the liquor mart. He was asked where the car was at 5:30, and he said he doesn't know, but it was out. It was there at six when he went out there to take it home. Uh, he's changed his story on the time he left work, and the time the keys were returned, and a couple other pieces when he asked when he was asked things like didn't you say or didn't did you say that and he would say i, I might have or i don't recall <laughs> here's another question and answer that made me laugh uh question when asked you said you worked until a quarter to six answer yes question you now testify you were at the office until six answer i was <laughs> Unless he was being literal, like I was there, but I wouldn't call it working. <laughs> um, everyone agrees the car was dropped off at 530. Malkin, who was driving can around all or not all afternoon for about a half an hour. Uh, he took the bus home, dropped the car off, took the bus home. Then they bring in another guy. Uh, his wife works at Chesapeake Brands and he's a dentist. I'm not really sure how he fits. I think he might be a salesman there, too. Anyway, he confirms that Malkin dropped the car off at 5.35 and Schulberg left in his own Dodge sedan. And he also knows Kid Can as Bloom or Blumenfeld. And the only reason I left him in is this exchange. Question. You are quite clear that you and Schulberg left at the same time, 5.40. Answer. Yes, sir. Question, you didn't see anybody else in the office after 5.30? Answer, no, we left the office at 5.30. No, you just said you left the office at 5.40. <laughs> oh. And then he amends it later by saying what he meant was that he left the office at 5.30, but they stood outside talking for a while. Oh, well. Anyway, the court got even more crowded as they were preparing for a kid can to testify. So we're back and um, we were, we left off at Kit Can's testimony at his trial. So the first thing that he clears up is that his name is Blumenfield, not Feld. One paper actually wrote the transcript also in it, but, but so that he said his middle name was Harry. And I think they just put that in because I don't think that's his real middle. I don't think he has a middle name. Anyway, he said he was 34 and he did some amateur boxing using the ring name Kid Can and that that's where the name came from. So that's his story and he's sticking with it. But I would say, you know how he got the name Kid Can? I says, no, I don't. He says, well, when anybody started buying guns, he'd die for the bathroom. He'll start calling Kid Can. 
again said he's been married to Lillian for eight years. And remember, this is likely a lie. Right. He said at the time of the arrest, he lived at 3948 First Avenue South. So this is a different address than he gave at his police statement. He goes over his previous liquor violations. He confirms that he was sentenced to one year in the workhouse in 1934, but he only served 10 months. He got out in February of 1935 and he went to work at Chesapeake Brands in March. And when he was in the workhouse, that's where he met that Wesley. That was the, the first witness. At one point, he was leaning on his hand, he had his, his chin in his hand, and his attorney told him to sit up straight. <laughs> he says his wife drove him to work at 10 a.m. He stayed at work until 1145 and then started his little journey around town. <laughs> and again, I'm not going to bore you with all of it, but um, he, I, I do have a source who told me that his father was a witness in this trial. Really? Yeah. And he said. They say he was a star witness in a murder trial like Kid Can had. And he had, he was in the Northern Bar, I believe it was, and over North Minneapolis. And uh, Kid Can was in there gambling. And they tried to pin a murder rap on Kid Can. And he told him he couldn't have done it. He was in the bar at the time drinking. He says he could have had it done, but he didn't do it. And the witness was a gambler, but not a drinker. So they knew he was sober. And so his testimony held a lot of weight. And to hear this guy tell it, he's like, his father's the one that got Kid Can off because it was his testimony that showed he was Does there he think, the does the source think his father was telling the truth on trial? Yeah. I mean, he... Oh, he told me a lot of stuff, this guy, um, not all about Kid Canner. He told me stuff about Minneapolis history and a whole bunch of really interesting stuff. He's a really cool guy. But um, he he said every time he would say something, he'd say, well, who knows? I mean, I don't know if it's true. I think it's true, but who knows? <laughs> so I, uh, I'm, I tend to think this maybe isn't true because this guy's name is never mentioned in either in um, Marta's book or in any of the newspaper transcripts right. of the trial that I've read, this person's name isn't even mentioned. I even Googled his name and he doesn't show up at all. So um, I'm not saying it didn't happen. Uh, I'm just saying it. I don't know that it did. And as far as I know, um, Kid Can only went to one bar during, that, during the day and his, his uh, gad about town. Um, and that was the Keystone bar where his brother worked, where his right. brother-in-law brother-in-law worked. Um, and I, that was at two fifteen. So I don't think that that wouldn't have been, that wouldn't have been a good alibi. So murder wasn't until five forty. Anyway. So he then, uh, went to the liquor mart to meet his brother, Harry, and pick up the, the real keys, Harry, the real Harry, actual Harry, and pick up the keys that he left for him for his car. Harry had borrowed Izzy's car and uh, the keys at the liquor mart. I think Harry, I think Harry works at the liquor mart, and that's why he went there. Um, 
This is when he said he met with this Lou Gallinson and walked partway with him to the barbershop. But Lou says he talked to him for five minutes in the store and didn't walk with him anywhere. Okay, so Kid Cans at the barbershop. After the shave, shoe shine, and tonic at the barbershop, he said he was going to Curly's for lunch, lunch at 630. Um, and he ordered a steak. And he said Brownstein came in saying cops were waiting for him at the liquor mart because Liggett had been killed. Um, and I don't know if Brownstein is Bronstein, Abe Brownstein, Brownie could be. I, I just says Brownstein, so I don't know. Um, uh, saying that Liggett had been killed and his name and Schulberg's names were mentioned. So he canceled his order, called his lawyer. His lawyer said, well, I'll be there in 30 minutes. He reordered his lunch, this time just a sandwich and soup. <laughs> he ate it, paid, and left. And just then, a newsboy came up the street hollering, extra. They had already had papers printed that Walter Liggett was dead. Like, wow. Hour and a half after. Uh, he bought a copy, and he went to the store, and he read it. And this is his quote. Then we went out again, and Detective Kramer was sitting in a car, and he said, We'll have to take you in. Mr. Liggett's been killed. And he mentioned yours and Schulberg's names. So Ken called Schulberg and Schulberg wanted to know if he could just come to the station in the morning. <laughs> I can hear him like, can I just do this tomorrow? Uh, no, man, you got, you got to come now. So uh, they said no. Well, they went to Schulberg's house, picked him up, then drove to the liquor mart uh, to pick up the lawyer, Charles Bank. And, but then bank ended up following in his own car. I don't know why they had to, maybe he didn't know the way to the police station. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Um, at this point in the testimony, uh, McMeekin, that's Kanzler, is he demanded again that the state produce the statement, Kid Can's statement now. And Pike, the state attorney, again, says it's not available. So the one I have from the newspaper is maybe not even right. If they didn't have it at the trial, I don't know. Uh, Pike said he looked for it during the break, but he couldn't find it. Ken says he goes to the barbershop almost every night after work between five and six. It's like his happy hour. <laughs> I just realized that. Yeah. Um, he says this time he's sure it was between five and 5.30. But remember before he said it was at 5.45. There was someone in the shaving chair, the middle chair that he usually goes, he usually goes to. So he chatted up the manicurist because of course right. uh, he chatted up another woman too. And once the middle chair was open, he jumped in. He thinks it was just before 6 PM and says he was there until 6:30 or 6:35. And since I think this is, it's because this was all a little suspicious and maybe the defense team realized that people weren't really buying it. Um, they came up with a new alibi witness, a 15-year-old newsboy named Isidore Brodsky, who testified that he sold Can a newspaper on a downtown street between 5.30 and 5.35. He knows the time because Can was standing near a large clock. However, when he was questioned uh, about the rest of his day, he didn't remember any of his other customers all day. So his lawyer at the end asked him, Mr. Blumenfeld, 
Did you have anything to do with the murder of Walter W. Liggett? Can shook his head emphatically. Not a thing in the world, he declared. That was another potential name of the podcast. Early on. Yep, I remember. <laughs> At the end of the day, just before adjourning, the prosecution could not hand over Can's signed statement to the defense. Pike, Pike replied that a search had been made, but the statement could not be located. Isn't it someone's job to keep track of important documents for the court like this? Yep. I think uh, that's a maybe. bunch of people's jobs. <laughs> I think they'd make copies. I know they don't have, you know, copy machines, but maybe they didn't even have mimeographs back then. I don't know how they made copies. Maybe someone had to hand copy everything when they made copies. I don't know. Anyway, after the defense rested, the state started its rebuttal by showing all of the discrepancies between the defense witnesses and their original statements. The state ended saying that there is a 20 minute gap between when reliable witnesses saw him and that gap was between 5.30 and 5.50 and the murder took place at 5.42. So that's right in the middle. Right. It was only a mile and a half between the barbershop and the alley where the murder occurred. They also alleged that the police sent to the home were sent there to confuse Edith and not to get the real story. They also proved that Candid did know how to use a gun. He had said before that he didn't know how to use a gun. He never had one, blah, blah, blah. But they proved that he did by bringing in two different officers who testified to seeing him with pistols in his possession. One of them is Barnard Wynn, who you may remember from such hits as the Cotton Club shootout in episode three. Yes. He's the <laughs> one, uh, he's one of the two that went in and the other one got shot and... Um, he got shot too, but the other guy got paralyzed. And is he hunt, hid under the table? Yep. yep. <laughs> okay. Yep. The jury started deliberation on February 18th at 4.15 p.m. They reached a verdict on the first ballot. Eight men and four women made their decision, but instead of heading back to the courthouse, they went out to dinner. They came back to a nearly empty courthouse, mostly filled with reporters and Kid Can's friends. When the, I must have cut this part out, but they came back at eight o'clock. So they were, they made them wait four hours. Um, there were probably drinks at that dinner. I'm sure there were. <laughs> I, shit, I would have been drinking. Are you kidding me? When the jury came back, the doors were locked and a dozen armed deputy sheriffs in plain clothes were scattered among the spectators. They had been ordered there by Sheriff John P. Wall who refused to explain the reason at the time. But in Woodbury's book, it says that the reason was that six Chicago criminals were in the courtroom at the time, waiting for the answer. Oh my goodness. Mm -hmm. The verdict, not guilty. <laughs> the crowd cheered wildly. He ran to the jury and kissed the hands of the female jurors and shook the hands of the men. Oh my goodness. I have a picture of him doing that. That's not allowed. And the ladies are like, <laughs> They're looking at him like he is, you know, one of the Beatles or something. <laughs> it's fucking sick. Then they went to a big party at the Radisson Hotel. So there, one thing that is I'm confused about, I think they didn't go straight to the party because I have pictures of Kid Can sitting in the, um, in the barbershop chair, getting his hair cut. And it says that right after the, the, the uh, verdict was read, 
they all ran to the barbershop and like staged this so that they could like photo shoot so they could take pictures as like a celebration and just to show he didn't even get his haircut the day of the murder but right he, yes so i don't know anyway he went they had a big party at the radisson uh, and then here's a quote from um kid can how in the world could Mrs. Liggett ever pick me out for a person that would kill her husband? I didn't have any reason to harm him like that. And I would not be a party to any such terrible act that would rob a wife and two little kitties of the protection of a husband and a father. Olson issues a statement that the BCA will not rest until Liggett's murderers have been caught. Well, he must not be resting because <laughs> it's still unsolved. <laughs> he says, I was sure they knew I was innocent. Yeah, you did. His friend said he'd leave the city within a few days and go to Florida. Edith issued a statement uh, later. She said that four members of the police department perjured themselves in an effort to win freedom for Can. And then she said, murder of an enemy of Floyd B. Olson is hardly a crime in Minneapolis. Beyond lying wholeheartedly for their lifelong associate, Blumenfeld, the Minneapolis police force has done nothing. <sighs> so this was going on during the trial but wasn't part of the trial floyd olson released a statement about edith liggett this ran in a lot of papers but i took this one from the redwood gazette in redwood falls in part Quote, her bereavement, in her bereavement, Mrs. Walter Liggett is entitled to have and has the sympathy of everyone, but that does not give her the right to make false and unfair statements such as her charge that I was connected with the murder of her husband. I hope it was inspired by some politician. <laughs> I never wronged Liggett in any way or wished him any harm. After he started to defame me, I completely ignored him. If every man in public office is to be held responsible for the safety of his defamers, we will have to maintain a large standing army. He further says that the impeachment charges are false and that his detractors have been using them for years. Also, the claim that Liggett was to appear before the legislature was false. He said that her statements were incited by crafty, politically minded men and said he would name them if he had to. And he ended with, for Mrs. Liggett, I have only sympathy. If an act of mine could help her, I would gladly perform it. He's good. Wow. Yeah. But she challenged him to name those politicians. <laughs> and you know who he named? A.B. Gilbert. The guy that was yep, with them the day, the day of the murder. And then he says, but he doesn't count. He's a nonpartisan league renegade. Never named anybody else, though. Uh, he was sick and at the Mayo Clinic at this time. It doesn't say what he was sick for, but he did die of stomach cancer fairly soon after this. Oh, wow. So also at the same time and in the room next door, the grand jury was attempting to start a cleanup of the city. They were studying the city council's liquor license application procedures. And on February 8th, so this is a week before the trial ended. The foreman for the grand jury said they'll keep investigating. He said, quote, there's enough stuff here to keep us busy until next December. A New York Times article reports that, quote, persons in the political structure were blamed today 
by a special investigator for what he described as a far-flung vice and crime net in Minneapolis. They say that two brothers have a prostitution concession and these conditions could not exist unless they were backed by someone in authority. So the mayor, much corruption. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the mayor challenged them to present evidence. And we'll do more on that later if we if you think it's interesting, if the people let us know if you think it's interesting. So this is a cute little tidbit. Um, Meyer Schulberg reported that two police officers approached him on Christmas Day offering to fix Kid Can's case for $10,000. What would they do to fix it? Lie, I guess. Lie, lie. Um, The grand jury is looking into those charges as well. County attorney Ed Goff demanded that Harry Bloom, actual Harry, appear before a grand jury to testify about offers to Kid Can's friends for fixing the trial jury, but detectives said he couldn't be located. But people who knew them said he was there in the courtroom. So he was actually right next door the whole time. Wow. Um, Another rumor (laughs) was that Kid Can didn't kill Walter, but he knew who did. And that if he were convicted, his friends would expose the whole mess, which I think explains why those plainclothes sheriffs were there, knowing that all those Chicago guys were in the courtroom. Yeah. So maybe we'll follow that up on another episode. There's a ton more about what happened after the trial, including an extortion plot and an attempted murder. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Volstead Land. Turn in next time when we wrap up the aftermath of this trial and also dip into a rum ring and the murder of a member of Kid Can's gang. These things actually happened during Prohibition, but we didn't get to it before. And so we're kind of, we're doing a little bit of that. We're time travelers. Yeah, that's it. I like that. (laughs) Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next episode and visit us on all our social media platforms for extra content. Also, if you're a fan, please consider supporting us by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, even if you don't listen on Apple. Don't forget to follow us on Patreon. You can follow for free or subscribe with a small fee to even get more content, including early releases. Volstead Land is produced by me, Amy, at Whimsical Productions and as part of the Collected Sounds Network. Thanks for listening. Okie doke.